While I was infinitely scrolling on Twitter the other day, I came across a tweet that caught my eye. It said, You don't have to watch Squid Game dubbed in English. It was from one of my favorite directors, Taika Waititi, and it sparked a flood of comments regarding the age old war sub versus dub. For example, at Jonah Langenbeck wrote, Subs over dubs forever! Why would you ever watch a foreign language film or series dubbed in English if you have the option for subtitles? And at surfboarder underscore four replied, Why would I ever use subtitles if I have a dub? I want to use both senses to enjoy the content, not use my eyes for both. You're supposed to watch TV, not read TV. And at Sith Witch made a great point about accessibility. Dyslexia, low vision, etc. I love experiencing stuff in the original language, but it's not feasible for some people, so it's nice to have the option. This is the great Subs vs. Dubs showdown. Welcome to Atlas Lingway, a show where we talk about languages, about the joyful, the challenging, and the joyfully challenging aspects of everyday communication. I'm Luis Lopez, and today we're going to talk about subtitling and dubbing. Nowadays, it seems like subtitles are considered the quote, correct way to appreciate a film or series. But when I was a kid in Mexico, we watched dubbed versions of all our favorite shows all the time. Cuando los Saiyajin nacen son examinados para saber todas sus aptitudes. Aquellos miserables que tengan un nivel muy bajo como tú son mandados a planetas como este And this online conversation made me wonder, what is better? Dubs or subs? How do we choose to watch a foreign film? And why do some countries choose dubbing over subtitling? To settle this score, we rang one of the most famous dubbers in Latin America, Mario Castañeda. He lives in Mexico City and works as an actor and an announcer. He's dubbed the likes of Bruce Willis, Jim Carrey, and Mark Ruffalo for years and one of my favorite cartoon characters as well, Son Goku from the Japanese anime Dragon Ball. When I started dubbing Goku, he was a teenager. He had this voice and it's part of his uh, personality. It's very childish, it's immature. So he speaks like, mm. Gohan, Krillin, podemos ir a pelear? But when Goku gets to Super Saiyajin, 
uh, in the Mexican Latin American version, he speaks to Freezer like this. ¿Qué estás haciendo, Freezer? No te quiero aquí. Quiero que te vayas. He, he becomes a man when he transforms and gets to the Super Saiyajin. Has a, an emotional change inside. According to Mario, dubbing is an art. And the secret to this art all lies in the emotion. Because the emotion changes the body. The breath uh, gets higher, the temperature gets higher, the heart slows or takes speed. So uh, that change affects the voice and the voice uh, travels with the, the emotion. We have uh, a vivential acting, uh, it's, it's alive. And uh, we try to be organic and uh, to be true. Because if you are not true and you don't feel it true, the people won't feel it uh, the same. That's what we do. Round one, dubbing one, subbing zero. But different cultures express emotions differently. Even those that speak the same language, like Spanish from Spain and Spanish from Latin America. Dragon Ball. They don't like in Spanish our version. We don't like in Latin America their version because they were not meant to be played outside their region or outside our region. Idiosyncrasia is the way a group or a country delivers emotions, feels emotions, and that is very personal for that country. We, Latin America, feel very the same. Just think of the word mom. Spain and Latin America attach quite a different meaning to it. In Mexico or Latin America, for us, you are called. You say, oh, yes, my mother, mother. But here in Mexico and Latin America, mom, mama. The word mama, it's very warm. The mother, no, we die for our mother. We have to express emotions in our way to feel them. And this all reflects in the dubbing. Because we don't, we, if we don't do it, we don't feel the emotion. So a good dubber possesses all the qualities of a good actor. But how can we as viewers discern good dubbing when we hear one? If you can see the picture and forget about the language, that's a good dubbing. If you are all the time, oh, no, that voice doesn't sound, no, no, you know, that, 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 no, oh, the, the sound is in the screen, not in the back. No, that's a, that's a bad dubbing. So that's how we measure it. If you forget about the Marvel Universe, if you forget about the language and you enjoy the picture, then it's a good voice dubbing. Does the people believe you? It's good. If they don't believe you, it doesn't work. It's that easy. So good dubbing relies on credibility. And here's why dubbing wins round two. Then why do people seem to think the meaning changes so much between subtitling and dubbing? Sometimes you change the order because of the lip sync. You have to adapt the meaning of the words from let's say, English to Spanish. For example, if you translate, I think, I think es, yo pienso. 
But yo pienso, has a labial, a letter with a, where you close your mouth. Yo pienso, p, the P, pienso. So I think yo pienso doesn't match. But if you say yo creo, which I believe, I think, yo creo, I think, yo creo, it's very similar. So we change pienso por creo when we adapt a sentence for voice dubbing. If you don't change the meaning of the sentence, it works. So it's not the same to subtitle, uh, to dub. When you subtitle, you do a direct translation. I think, yo pienso. It doesn't change anything because that's what the word means. So it's different. Well, I think back to the Twitter thread, and I wonder why, if so much effort is put into dubbing, many people still think that subbing is this superior entity. Especially considering that some people don't have a choice. You know, voice dubbing does a lot of work, social work, for people who are not instructed, they, they, don't, they don't know how to read, or they don't read fast, they don't see well, they don't have glasses, or they are blind. So for them, the dubbed version is the only way to, to enjoy video work. So that's the social meaning of the dubbing. As you may have noticed, Mario is absolutely in love with his job. And I totally get it. Being a dubber, you have to be able to convey emotions, to interpret the way your culture expresses them. You have to rise to the challenge of making the lip sync work. And that's why another point goes to dubbing. When you have to read the subtitles, you take your eyes away from the scene. You are only with the letters, so you're reading, and you can't uh, feel or see the whole fight or the whole scene or whatever. So when you take away the letters, because it's in your language, you can see the scene. And if you feel the emotions, then you are in the story. It's in your language, speaks your emotions, and you can enjoy everything. When you use uh, subtitles, you can do all that. And as one of the Twitter users said, dubbing can create more accessibility. But that's also true for subtitles. Dubbing is for people without uh, good eyes uh, or blind people. But what about theft people? They can't understand a picture even if it's in their language, which they don't listen. So we need to do something for those people. Okay, so this one's a draw. And we don't see them as the enemy, you know? It's, uh, no, it's, it's another branch of the same tree. I remember in Mexico here, Warner Brothers had all their series subtitled. And someday they say, okay, you know, we're going to use our dubbed uh, versions because more people will join to see them. So the benefit of dubbing is that you can better immerse yourself in a story when it's in your own language, from your own culture. In fact, cultural content is so relevant that production companies often decide to adapt a character to the target culture, and change details of their background that can create problems in foreign markets. For example, remember the character Willy from The Simpsons? 
the Scottish groundskeeper. It reminds me why I got into this business. Well, in the Italian version, he speaks with a Sardinian accent. This is because the Scottish stereotype in the US is not the same as it is in Italy. Sardinia is an island off the southern coast of Italy, known for its solitary and rural character. And Italian audiences have similar preconceived notions towards Sardinians to what Americans do towards Scots. But this kind of drastic adaptation is only possible with dubbing. Subtitling is more limited. It strives to capture every dialogue and on-screen text while making it easily readable in a few seconds. Though they also have to adapt to cultural differences, and this is how translators proceed when subtitling. They will maybe eliminate some of the things that they consider to be redundant, and that depends on each country and on the rules for each country. Like the culture and what is acceptable, what is customary in that country. For instance, the Nordics usually have a lot of truncation, so they will eliminate dialogue which they consider to be unnecessary, things that they consider that the public would understand. This is Andrea Riano, the VP of the subtitling product at Iuno SDI Group, a global subtitling company. She scores the first point for subtitles. In other countries, for instance, in Asian countries, the public expects to see subtitled everything that people speak on the screen because this is how they feel comfortable. While the main challenge of dubbing has to do with length and lip sync, subtitles have their own obstacles to overcome. Sometimes it can be very difficult to do. I mean, uh, shows, especially TV shows, but some movies as well, who have a lot of cultural references, especially in the U.S. to sports and other popular culture, it's very difficult to translate and to make it not understandable because it's easy to make it understandable, but to make it as enjoyable to uh, an audience in a different country to understand. This sounds a lot like what happened to The Simpsons in Italy. So, translating culture is a difficult feat, but not impossible. One of the most successful localizations I have seen, it's that uh, joke in Pulp Fiction that Irma Thurman tells uh, John Travolta where she says, there's a mama tomato and papa tomato that walk down the street and baby tomato legs behind and the dad goes and uh, pinches the baby tomato and says, uh, catch up. So that is a difficult joke to translate because it's lengthy and because it has this catch up reference to tomatoes. And the translation that I have seen was in French where they converted this to a... Um, Mama citron et papa citron, so they switched it to lemon. And then they, instead of ketchup, the dad says, presse-toi citron. Citron pressé is lemonade in French. So they were able to localize this entire joke and just move it from a tomato to a lemonade and uh, do it in a very, very smoothly. Subbing two, dubbing three. We asked Mario what makes a good dubbing. Now, let's see if subtitling can catch up to its competitor. 
What you have to do as a translator is convey the style and the sense of what was said using as few words as possible. You're not supposed to translate word for word. This is the death of translating for the entertainment industry. In my view, you have to have three skills or three talents. You have to have uh, linguistic talents and style. You have to have good timing. And then you have to be very fast. Maybe then, in some ways, subtitling Squid Game is kind of like the Squid Game itself. Fast-paced decision-making and high stakes. Though maybe not that high. That's the problem, because you do not have, like, forever to think about these things. You have to think about them quickly and well. So this is obviously very challenging. That's a point for Team Sub. The ability to produce translated content quicker and cheaper. It looks like we might have a draw. But in the end, it's the audience who decides. I think that there is a vast difference between the audience in the United States versus the audience in other countries in the world. Generally speaking, there is a lot of reluctance to read movies. People do not like to read movies. For instance, in Europe, there are countries where movies and TV shows are subtitled, which are for adults, like normal shows, which is the Nordics, also in Eastern Europe, Romania, other territories have almost nothing subtitled and everything is dubbed. And this is how people have been watching these uh, shows since the beginning of the sound era, since the 30s. I've actually done some research on this and discovered something interesting about the Polish audiovisual market. People were asked whether they preferred dubbing or subtitles, and only 19% voted to switch to subtitles. This is particularly curious because in Poland, there is no dubbing as we know it. Only one, yes, one, voice actor reads the parts of all characters. Seriously. So these are so culturally ingrained that it's very difficult to move audiences from one way of doing things to another. There will always be people that will be watching in the U.S. foreign shows because they're interested in that. But for the public at large, that's still the jury is still out on that. And old habits die hard. That's why so many countries prefer to have their blockbuster movies dubbed in their own language. But how and why did some of these habits develop? How did this showdown come to be in the first place? With the advent of synchronized sound in cinema from the late 1920s onwards, there was a ferment of experimentation for a few years, in the course of which dubbing and subtitling became established as the two main options for film translation. From the early 1900s, silent films that reached international audiences with the aid of intertitles. Intertitles are title cards which provided the spectators with indications of time and place, 
they described or commented on the actions and characters and so on. But when the presence of audible dialogue in film became the most popular attraction, film companies had to devise new methods to export a product to capable of competing internationally. This is Dr. Carla Moreau Keating, a research associate at the University of Bristol in the Department of Film and Television. One method consisted in the shooting of the same film multiple times in multiple languages. These are known as MLVs, multiple language versions. They aim to bypass translation issues altogether. Imagine how expensive that must have been. And I don't envy the casting director, who had to find actors who could speak different languages. Surely there must be a simpler way. There was a second method which involved substituting one actor's voice for another's. The film trade referred to this operation as language dubbing. There was a third method. This involves the superimposition of text on screen during the action, also known as titling. And thus, the battle between dubbing and subtitling was born. But what led certain countries to take sides? I think in the early years of sound, politics played a key role in the establishment of one translation method over another. As early as November 1929, the Italian State Film Office began to grant a screening authorization to imported foreign films only under the condition that any scene dialogue was deleted. In other words, local film exhibitors were asked to program films in a silent version leaving or adding music and sound effects and replacing the muted dialogues with Italian intertitles. So the choice between dubbing and subtitling wasn't only about what audiences preferred. It was about creating a nation's identity. And nowadays, the preference of Italian audiences still tilts towards dubbing. But who knows, that may change in the future. I believe that we consider a country's preference from one method of translation of another as dynamic. So because experimentation with audiovisual translation is heavily dependent on the availability of technology and on other market-specific considerations, such as government and industry policy, the establishment of one translation method over another within a given market is neither predictable nor necessarily permanent. Take the UK, for example which is often considered a subtitling market. Although there is substantial amount of evidence to say that British press critics despise dubbing, at least publicly, European films, and especially Italian films, dubbed into English did enjoy the wide distribution in the UK in the 1950s and 60s. Art house cinemas in London and other major urban centers often show European films with subtitles, but they were catering to educated cinephiles to lovers of all things foreign and to immigrant communities. To this day, we still sometimes picture that snotty film major when we think of someone who prefers subtitles. But maybe our choice of watching subtitled movies over dubbed movies is a question of genre. I think we can look into genre as a possible explanation of why certain films were dubbed rather than subtitled. The question of having auteur films, as they began to be called, with you know directors' personalities that were quite popular because of the film festival circuit and other promotional campaign. Sometimes films were subtitled first, and then if they first ran 
were successful, then there was a case that could be made um, for, for it to be dubbed as well. I think that all kinds of film could be dubbed. La Dolce Vita was initially subtitled and following its successful first run, it was dubbed both in British English and in American English. Well, as usual, it all comes down to one thing, money. Andrea said it, subtitling is fast and therefore cheap. So maybe the question isn't, is the movie more enjoyable dubbed, but is it worth it? Is the market big enough? For Squid Game, both versions were worth producing. If you can't get enough of it, you can watch it dubbed in 13 languages and subtitled in 31. This is a nine-episode survival thriller, which is on track to become the service's most-watched non-English language show in the world, hitting number one in over 90 countries. I wonder if the movie Parasite managed to achieve that. Well, according to Variety magazine, it did crash the subtitle barrier. After its release, it became 2019's highest grossing foreign language film. So my question would be, can Anglophone audiences, or Italian or Spanish speakers for that matter, be converted to watching subtitled films? Or can Scandinavian audiences be enticed to watch dubbed programs on streaming TV. I don't know, but I hope that the latest debates on accessibility and audiovisual translation signal a real breakthrough in the way audiences around the world, regardless of their age, education background, economic and social status, can access non-American English language content. I also wish that. And talking to all these people who work in both subtitling and dubbing, I realize that this battle doesn't have a winner. What counts is that other cultures and foreign media are available to the widest possible spectrum of audiences. So I'll let you enjoy Squid Game with subtitles. As long as you let me have my dubbed Dragon Ball Z. Or as I like to call it, Dragon Ball Z. Thank you for listening to Atlas Lingue. If you're new to the series, catch up with our previous episodes. I'm Luis Lopez, and it has been a pleasure to accompany you on this journey. Special thanks to our guests Mario Castañeda, Andrea Riano, and Carla Moreau-Keating. Production and theme by Studio Ochenta. Sound design by Chiara Santella. Senior producer, Grizia Sala. Assistant producers, Haley Choi, Leo Ibáñez, Leia Zipstein, and Clark Marchese. For more information on Atlas Lingue, a Studio Ochenta original series and podcast, visit ochentastudio.com. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at Ochenta Podcasts. Our podcast is available on CastBox, Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen to podcasts.
Hi, it's Luis here, and I want to tell you about a show we've been listening to called The Pulso Podcast. There are a lot of podcasts that cover Latino culture and news, but this is one of the first we've heard that really utilizes the throughline of history to provide more context and nuance to our stories. From the halls of Congress to the stages of Broadway, even the food we consider to be American, Latinos helped build this country. And we're not going anywhere. Yet most podcasts are still lacking Latino representation behind and in front of the mic. The Pulso Podcast is a Latina-hosted, Latina-produced show that explores untold stories and unheard voices shaping the experiences of nuestra gente. They've covered topics from beauty standards and gender equality to mental health and food origins. And did you know that there is an official Spanish version of the Star-Spangled Banner? Or that a team of Mexican lawyers changed the future of segregation laws in the 50s? To hear more, check out the Pulso podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.